0: Welcome to Health or Consequences. This is our inaugural podcast, a conversation on healthcare policy affecting Massachusetts that we plan to make a regular feature of the CODcast of Commonwealth Magazine. I'm John McDonough from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. My partner in crime is Paul Hattis from the Tufts University School of Medicine and its public health program. And we are pleased and honored to be joined by Secretary Mary Lou Sutters. Secretary of the Massachusetts Office of Health and Human Services, as our inaugural guest. So thank you so much for coming, Secretary Sutter's. We're pleased to welcome you here.
1: Thank you for having me. I'd like to think that you're partners in health rather than partners in crime, but we'll just leave it at that.
2: We'll, we'll do the best that we can. I want to offer my uh, thank you as well, Secretary Sutter's. And I think we'll get started maybe with focusing on what has been perhaps a signature issue for the Baker administration, the opioid concerns uh, and challenge. Uh, what have been the key accomplishments, would you say, to date for the first four years?
1: Well, thank you for that question. Um, we've actually had s- several signature items, but obviously opioids is front and center to the uh, governor's administration, and it will be in Baker 2.0 as well. This is certainly not one and done. As we've said, the this epidemic was long in making, and it's going to take uh, a lot of fortitude and hard work to really work our way through this. Uh, The good news is I think that uh, we have, for once and all, for all in the Commonwealth, defined addictions for what they are, um, which is a disease, and it's a chronically relapsing disease. You need to lean into people to help them get the treatment and supports they need to recover and not sort of walk away from them. Um, the good news is for the first time, we've seen a slight decline in overdose deaths, uh, 4%. So I say to people, it's not a victory lap. It is, you know, a trend in a slight trend in the right direction. Uh, 30% reduction in opioid prescriptions. You know, I still to this day, um, I remember the statistic that was given to me one day that in 2014, there were 4.4 million prescriptions written yielding 6.6 million opioid pills in the commonwealth of massachusetts for massachusetts residents in one year. I mean that's a just phenomenal number. a phenomenal number. And so we have decreased that by 30%. We've passed two uh, major pieces of legislation I refer to them as I'm not the marketing guru as we all know opioid 1.0 and opioid 2.0 that I think really establishes some good standards. Massachusetts, the seven-day limit on first-time prescriptions. Uh, I think that the uh, e-prescribing in 2020 for all prescriptions, the new PMP. I mean, I could go on. Mm-hmm. Um, the threat that's out there is, so that's some of the good news. Um, I think we've galvanized people's attention. You can't not talk about the opioid epidemic. We've certainly expanded access to treatment. We have a long ways to go. The One of the threats out there is um, fentanyl. So in 2015, um, fentanyl was present in uh, just about 40% of overdose deaths. And the most recent data that we just released, right, it's 90%. And fentanyl kills. I mean, you, you have to get ahead of it. Um, and that's obviously a challenge.
2: Uh, one of the areas that I talk to people about when they talk about the opiates issue is, what's happening in jails and prisons? It's something you're not directly responsible for. But as the health secretary, you you think about all your constituents, including those who are incarcerated. Any, any thoughts about that particular cohort?
1: Well, absolutely, because, you know, for many years, in fact, um, jails, uh, our police and jails have really been the front door into treatment for addictions, or that's how we treated addictions. And uh, I am really committed to helping us really redefine the access points for the treatment of addictions through the clinical path and not through courts. Uh, In fact, I do have some uh, responsibilities. Mm. As you know, for the very first time, uh, and I am pleased about this, So I'm sorry, it took 30 years for the Commonwealth to actually do this, was to transfer women who had been civilly committed for addictions from Framingham State Prison to an extraordinarily strong program at the Department of Health down Taunton State Hospital. Wow. For 30 years, people said they were going to end that practice, and it, it, took, a, it took a Republican governor and a bipartisan legislature to pass that. Um, and starting, uh, in fact, I just met with all the sheriffs. So uh, as of September 2019, the sheriffs have to provide medication-assisted treatment and um, behavioral treatment for individuals with addictions within the jails, uh, and I'm I'm funding it, so I have actually a fair amount to say about the the quality of uh, the expectations to be provided. But really, my goal is to not have people um, treated through the jails, right? But really treated as we would expect to be treated in healthcare facilities.
0: Okay. So let's turn to mass health.
1: Okay, John, I'll turn to you.
0: Your biggest (laughs) responsibility, the biggest part of the state budget. You've done uh, enormous reform in that program launched this past March with moving 830,000 MassHealth enrollees into uh, accountable care organizations in the MassHealth program. Uh, Amazing the Complexity and the magnitude of what was done, and also amazing the lack of awareness among the public that anything happened at all. So, how's it going? How do you look back on it, and what do you see moving ahead?
1: Yeah. So, um, so as we all know, mass health is the biggest part of the state budget, forty percent of the state budget, and uh, I am, I am really extraordinarily pleased with the progress we've made in the mass health program on many fronts. Um, First of all, I think uh, one of the great things about being secretary is the opportunity to work with an extraordinary, smart group of uh, public servants. I mean, you know, um, the rolling out of the accountable care organizations is our ability to really try to provide the right treatment at the right time for some of our most vulnerable citizens, people who need Medicaid for their health care. Uh, you know, I sort of like, I like sort of being under the radar screen, just do the work, and, uh, um, and I think that's what we've done in the ACOs, but really before that, we had, we probably exhausted everybody in uh, 16, 18 months of a very public process, bringing together anyone who c- wanted to come to the table to design what an accountable care organization should look like. Um, And so last March, uh, 17 accountable accountable care organizations, which really for people who are listening, unless you're really a policy wonk, what we're really talking about is primary care um, offices, really embracing people's care and arranging all of their treatment needs for them uh, in a very respectful, culturally appropriate way. That's really what we're talking about here. And uh, along with whatever behavioral health or long-term services needs they have as well in the Medicaid program. So March 1st, we rolled, we rolled out uh, for, as you say, uh, just under 900,000 people, 850,000 people into the ACOs. And I think what I'm proudest about is, honestly, you can't anticipate every issue that's going to come up. So it's really then how do you engage so we understood that there would be continuity of care issues for people so where people were currently getting their treatment right that that might not be part of ACO1 so we needed to we needed to figure that out with people there were some individuals with really some complex conditions that again you can't always anticipate all that so it's then how do you respond And I do think we get some good marks from people from what was originally going to be a 30-day continuity of care period, which was really, we rolled it out from March until July 1st. And then really, from where I sit, um, everyone was anchored on March 1st. For me, it was really July 1st. So July 1st, people were in their ACOs, and um, so here's how it's going. Seventy-five percent of providers... Um, are involved, who have historically been involved with MassHealth, are part of the ACO networks. We've had very little movement of individuals, like, I don't like this ACO, I want to go to another one. Very little um, disruption. And that was really one of the things that I was looking for, was, you know, somebody wakes up on July 2nd and says, what? Who's my primary care physician? We've seen very little of that. Um, So I am, you know, I would say six months in, um, we don't hear a lot of noise. We're very intentional to keeping the ACOs very close in terms of, you know, the the hard part is sometimes not really in the design, which is hard. It's then in the implementation, and so I would say now we're in the heart of the implementation.
0: So can we look ahead just a few years because these are always done in partnership with the federal government, and you do them through these. Things called 1115 waivers, which I'll let you define, and and that allows you to do funky different things with your Medicaid program than the federal statute allows. And I
1: would not use the word funky. I would use the word it gives us flexibility,
0: absolutely, right,
1: to experiment.
0: Right, absolutely. And so the waiver we're under expires in 2021. You must already have some people who are thinking about will we need any waivers after 2021? Um, What does the world look like when we get to 2021 as far as you can see right now? Because for a lot of the people who are involved in this, that's a big question in their minds.
1: right. So for us, it's 2022, uh, fiscal year uh, 2022. Um, Massachusetts has long existed using Medicaid waivers. We think that that uh, allows the state the flexibility to really meet what a state's needs are rather than the all the federal rules, if you would. So as we are thinking um, future, because you need to now, would be hoping to be able to extend um, uh, the accountable care organizations, uh, really also hoping to to meet the needs of uh, people who are what we call as dually eligible, Medicaid, Medicare, which we've been in a pilot um, and we continue to pilot, but that would really be, if we can figure out the financing of the Medicaid, Medicare, if that would really become part of it. We will also probably extend for uh, individuals with behavioral health conditions uh, through the, the new guidance around extending for behavioral health services. And really trying to, John, honestly, really trying to integrate, I mean, I've been saying this for years, but truly integrate behavioral health within primary care with strong linkages to long-term services and supports, which makes the Medicaid program unique. And we're one of the few states that finally the federal government has given um, a waiver or permission on um, social determinants or people's context of their health, which is my Favorite term, and that's just starting to roll out. So I'm really hoping, like as we get close to renewing our waiver and engaging with the federal government, that we'll be able to take those pieces and really integrate this mm-hmm. to what I would call people's whole health.
0: Well, good luck with that because it's such an enormous challenge. Um, let's let's turn to pharmaceuticals if we can and go there by way of mass health. Um, you tried to make a big change in terms of pharmaceutical payment policy and and uh, and drug availability, uh, and, and the federal government said no. Um, w- can you reflect on that? And, uh, and what's the future in terms of trying to create some changes on pharmaceutical policy in mass health and beyond mass health?
1: So, Medicaid, unlike uh, commercial plans, doesn't have the same tool set of tools available to to try to negotiate uh, directly with uh, manufacturers. And uh, quite frankly, and we've been honest about this, we were really disappointed in the in the federal government uh, denial of the Massachusetts uh, uh, waiver application. Uh, the we won't get into the details because, again. Four of us will like like the argument, but no one else will. Um, it was completely legal what we had proposed, um, and in what the heart of it was: how do we negotiate with the the drugs that have no competition? I mean, I'm very proud of what we've done in the mass health program around hepatitis C, for example. So, um, when sovaldi came on the market, high priced drug. Um, And it was limited to individuals who were diagnosed with hepatitis C. Um, Once um, other uh, similar medications came on the market, we engaged in a very intense negotiation. I am really proud of the fact that anyone on Medicaid who is diagnosed with hep C has full access to medications. We have universal access to hep C medications, life-saving medications, as a result of competition and driving down the price. What do you do when you can't, when you have no tools? Um, In five years, um, the pharmacy budget in Medicaid has grown by a, ready for this, a billion dollars. There are 30 drugs that are responsible for um, $600 million of the Medicaid program. And what I want to do is to ensure that we have wide access to these medications, but at a transparent and reasonable cost to the Commonwealth. I want to engage in in direct uh, direct negotiations with manufacturers so you will see um, next year uh, a another mass health uh, pharmacy reform one that guarantees access two goes for direct negotiations with manufacturers and three has strong consumer protections
0: and we know the state has a big role in terms of pharmaceuticals and mass health what about Above and beyond Mass Health, I know you can't touch Medicare, you can't touch self-insured large employers, uh, but there's also the state-licensed coverage. Is there a role for the state in terms of addressing rising drug costs outside of Mass Health, or is that really an issue for the federal government? Do you think?
1: No, we think we we believe that uh, there should be uh, in the Commonwealth uh, a much more transparent process around. Um, pharmacy pricing and negotiations. And uh, I think the the legislature, um, both bills last year took some steps at it. And I think both the administration and the legislature will come back at health care reform and pharmacy in particular.
2: Okay. Paul. Uh, let's talk a little bit more then about the private market as we turn in that direction. And, you know, and you the breadth of your job, you sit as the, uh, not only on the health policy commission as a commissioner, but but share the connector board and involve with, with CHIA. So there's a whole range of market issues about mergers and consolidations, pricing, price variation, community hospital challenges, overall cost and affordability.
1: Um, I think you just summed up healthcare.
2: There we go. Let's start with the most recent transaction, B.I. Leahy. How did you feel about the way it came out, as well as how the government agencies that were involved uh, interacted with each other to mm-hmm. get the result that we got?
1: Um, so I am. Uh I am pleased with the outcome uh, in the sense of um, I think that uh, the work that uh, the Health Policy Commission did um, on the cost trends market. uh, I think that the work that uh, we did with the Department of Public Health in reopening the determination of need to uh, add additional requirements, very specific requirements, uh, and extending the oversight of the Department of Public Health to 10 years. Um, which is, I think, the first time ever we have really... that long? Right, to really extend oversight, because this is new. Um, You know, this is, in many ways, the first big merger, right, since the partners' merger, Mm -hmm. however many years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, We worked very closely with the Attorney General's office uh, to sort of ensure sort of the work that we were doing in the Department of Public Health was consistent with where the attorney general was going. So I really saw this as HPC sort of laying the foundation, the Department of Public Health reopening um, its regulatory oversight, Mm -hmm. and then the attorney general building on top of that. There's no question this is a, we now have a duopoly. Um, There's a lot of talk about duopolies. Well, I think we now have this obligation to measure the impact of what does it mean to have two strong systems in terms of trying to constrain prices?
2: Yeah, the price issue for a moment, both the HPC and the Attorney General expressed some concern about other providers, not partners, but some of our community hospitals or others in the system. Are you worried about them? Uh, not only because of this transaction, but just sort of going forward at this I, point?
1: So I do think that they, in the Attorney General's um, Conditions um, that they settled with B.I. Leahy, certainly within that market up in the Merrimack Valley um northern, you know, north of Boston market. I do think that she put in some good protections. I do think this coming year, as we revisit health care reform in the Commonwealth, we need to ensure that people have access to the community hospitals. I I can't tell you what that's going to look like at this moment, but stay tuned and have me back.
2: Okay. Is is there anything you could tell us, though, whether it's about, if not about that issue, something else with the market that might be something that the Baker administration is going to push for legislatively or otherwise Mm this next year?
1: Um, so, you know, I'm sort of feeling like I'm in Baker 1.5 at the moment. Um, I guess the, uh, the, some news would be that I am uh, continuing on as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Congratulations in-
2: to all of us for that.
1: Thank my spouse. Um, and uh, we do believe that uh, the Commonwealth needs to really grapple with um, the affordability of health care. And as a social worker, for me, I really need to also, in addition to affordability of health care and costs, is access and availability. So the three A's are really where I'm going for in Baker 2.0. Okay.
2: Let me probe a little bit about that affordability. One of the things that interested me this past year was at the uh, benchmark hearing where the HPC gets to, uh, if it wants, reset the benchmark. It it held it at 3.1%. You made a public comment and said you wish that the benchmark could actually be lower than that level. Uh, I, th- I took note of that. Uh, anything you want to say about that?
1: Well, I, you know, we know that the Commonwealth has, uh, um, if not the most expensive health care system in the United States, the second most expensive healthcare care system in the United States, and I think we need to be very focused on, on costs. And um, we established a benchmark in Massachusetts uh, and I think that the more that we can try to ensure quality access and bring down costs in a very real way, that we will we will really um, do what we need to do in Massachusetts. So I am, uh, I'm committed to the benchmark. And I think as we think about healthcare care reform, how is it we use that benchmark um, as a way to not meet, but sort of see what we can do to really take out costs. But, but, not diminish quality.
0: So can I just turn to the Affordable Care Act and the federal Trump administration. Lots of changes going on in DC aside from Congress, because Congress has not gotten much done, but the Trump administration is allowing association health plans, short-term health insurance, they're promoting work requirements and state Medicaid programs. These things have a lot of people around the country concerned. Are we insulated from all of that in Massachusetts, and is there anything happening down in D.C. that has you worried?
1: Well, as, as you know, since we've known each other for a few years, uh, I'm a warrior, so I tend to worry about everything. Uh, uh, I, am, I am worried about the continued um, rather than constructive conversations about what we need to do to um, make changes to the Affordable Care Act where things need to be changed because anyone who's been involved in complex, complicated piece of legislation know you're always improving upon as opposed to just dismantling one. Uh, Second is, and we are a little insulated in Massachusetts, but we cannot become complacent because we do have a strong belief in our state around coverage and affordability. Um, And we continue to maintain that. We also have a strong belief in our state that predates the Affordable Care Act around shared responsibilities, like everyone participates: providers, individuals, plans. Right. So we have a, we have some we have strong beliefs here that are not going to diminish. What we need to do is to ensure that whatever happens at the federal landscape doesn't take those things away. And let me just give two quick examples, if I may. Um, our our marketplace, our exchange. Um, so Massachusetts. So I chair the Connector Board, um, which is good because it keeps the Mass Health Connector relationship very strong. So we're in the sort of the middle of open enrollment, uh, despite what you're hearing at the national level. Right now, we're seeing a nine percent, an eight percent increase in open enrollment right now good on nice. the Connector. We have the second lowest rates um, of any exchange in the United States. Um, And our open enrollment extends until January. So the noise at the federal level is not impacting Massachusetts. That is very strong. And even though the federal government um, no longer requires the individual mandate, we do. We also have, and I, I appreciate you mentioning the associated health plans and the like, that we have strong minimum coverage here. So I don't see that being diminished Mm. at all?
0: There's a lawsuit going on down in Texas, a federal lawsuit that would once again seek to overturn the whole ACA. It appears like it's going to get a favorable ruling any day in the district court and probably through the appeals court that it would be routed to. And we may end up with another case before the Supreme Court on the future of repealing or not repealing the ACA with a different configuration on the court is that on your radar screen at all does that where are you or is that just so far away I'll, I'll deal with it when I see it
1: Well no I'm not a here and, here and, you know like in the moment kind of a person no I follow um, the trends and the lawsuits out there and what I think what we have to do in Massachusetts is go back to what fundamentally binds us in our state, which is coverage, affordability, access and availability. And I'd much rather be having those conversations in our state than in so many other states. The other thing is, as you know, in some very, in states that are very, very Republican, have expanded right coverage through the Affordable Care Act. I mean, if you had said to me, right, Kansas, Oklahoma, I'm not going to get all my states right. Nebraska, Nebraska, Idaho, Utah. It's. So at some point, there might be this momentum where you really can't just completely dismantle.
0: So last topic is, is, is a favorite of yours, mental health. If you were the commissioner of mental health, and it's still your passion, and thank you for that. There was a report last week from the Blue Cross Foundation saying that people across the state are having some real trouble getting access to mental health services, even though they have coverage. Any thoughts about that and what could be done?
1: It's... Um, it's not just a passion of mine. I don't know how you can talk about health without talking about both oral and behavioral health and physical health, quite frankly. And um, there are extraordinary access issues. It's across all payers. Uh, We may feel it more in the Medicaid program because it's 1.86 million people, and some of them are people with disabilities and the like. Um, It is it is a provider issue. It's a plan issue. It's an access issue. It's a parity issue. Uh, in fact, this afternoon, we—the uh, div- I'm very proud of the Division of Insurance uh, and the Department of Health, with some perhaps Mary Lou Sutter's tinkering, um, has issued a bulletin uh, defining uh, the outpatient and intermediate care services for youth and adolescents for the parity law that passed. And I was commissioner of mental health then, um, really defining that. I I applaud the payers, the carriers, for sitting at the table. Um, you know, they didn't start with no; they started with like, what is this? And I'm that again. That doesn't guarantee that people are going to find it, but it sort of makes it clear what commercial insurers need to cover, at least for youth with behavioral health conditions. Um, you can expect that I'm gonna um, take this on hot and heavy in Baker 2.0, my friend.
0: Thank you. So we're running out of time. Thank you for letting us know that you're reappointed as secretary. We're really, Paul and I are both delighted to hear that.
2: Look forward to having you back next year, perhaps, even to uh, check on progress.
0: But can I just, ha- what's this job like for you? I mean, this is a tough lift. How are you doing? <laughs>
1: Thank you. I think um, it is a, you know, it's. An, I, I've always been a public servant. I def, I've always defined myself as a public servant, even when I have not been in public service. It is extraordinarily. Uh, it's an extraordinary privilege. It's also extraordinarily humbling because I know I'm half a state government and um, I have all these resources available to me. Um, but the reality is, even with all of those resources you realize you cannot resolve every human condition and problem that comes to you. But what you can do is treat every issue and person that comes to you or becomes known to you with dignity and respect. Um, That's sort of what drives me. Um, I, uh, you know, when you realize it's one in four people directly touch something that you are responsible for, that's the sort of, that's, just extraordinary when you think of the public health programs. Some of the public health programs, it's every community in the Commonwealth. I take it with the seriousness that uh, I think you would want me to. Um, my spouse will not calculate my hourly wage because he's decided I'm just volunteering my time for the Commonwealth. But it's um, I'm extraordinarily grateful for this opportunity. And um, it's, it's as a social worker... Um, I do understand the complexity of the issues. I don't simplify anything, and uh, I'm really grateful to everyone who gives me advice and tells me what it is they think I should be doing and what my priorities are, because believe it or not, I actually take all that in and then try to synthesize it into some very key priorities.
0: Well, it's premature, but I think history is going to show you're one of our great Secretaries of Health and Human Services may be the best. But thank you for joining us on our inaugural podcast. We'll be back in January. Paul, what are we going to talk
2: about? We're going to have uh, Andy Dreyfus, CEO of uh, Blue Cross of Massachusetts, uh, sharing a little bit about what's going on with them and how he's thinking about the future. Great. See you then. Thank, thank you, you, Paul. Thank you, Mary Lou.
1: Happy holidays, everybody. Thank, thank you. you so
2: much. Thank you.
0: Thank you.